Happy Scorpio season, and welcome to Between the Bills, a podcast highlighting reproductive justice advocacy in the feminist South, in collaboration with Pulp Magazine. Pulp is a multimedia sex, sexuality, and reproductive rights publication on Medium. For the sake of transparency, we need 1,000 followers on the site by the end of November to continue producing content like Between the Bills. So head over to medium.com pulpmag to support us. My name is Emily Rose Thorne, and I'm a journalist based in Macon, Georgia. I want to expand our understanding of what reproductive justice means through Between the Bills by focusing on education, experiences, and ideas for a better future. Last episode, we explored the painful, underfunded, misogynistic mystery of polycystic ovarian syndrome. It's a reproductive health disorder characterized by pelvic pain, menstrual irregularities, androgen excess, and a plethora of other symptoms including complications that can be life-threatening. If you haven't listened to it yet, we hear from reproductive surgeon Jamie Nodler, author and advocate Chrissy D, and pulp writer Catherine Fusco about the uncomfortable space where race, class, size, gender, and geography intersect in reproductive healthcare. You won't want to miss it. What's often left out of reproductive health discussions is the lack of fundamental understanding young folks have about their own bodies. So, falling in line with the wonderful sexy overtones of Scorpio season, let's talk about the intersection between sex, education, and the South. Sex ed. Particularly, abstinence-only sex ed. Pretend I don't have in today's episode, you'll hear from Avery Grillo, a college student from Peachtree City, Georgia, Julia Partain, a Mercer University graduate living in Florida, and Pulp's very own co-founding editor, Katie Tandy. I've also got clips from a TED Talk by Sue J. Johnson, an activist and journalist, a Cosmopolitan interview with Georgia mom and sex ed reform advocate Jamie Winfrey, and a wild vintage sex ed movie you've got to hear. Here's Julia discussing her virginity first sex ed in school. Like, we're scaring women away from their own bodies? Like, are you kidding me? We were basically made to feel bad for the bodies that God gave us, or whatever you believe in gave us. More than one-third of Georgia's 450 high schools, including the largest school system we have, Follow a sex ed curriculum called Choosing the Best, meaning choosing abstinence. Abstinence-only sex education for the uninitiated is pretty much exactly what it sounds like, teaching middle and high school students that the best way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases and unwanted pregnancy is to just abstain from sex. As for nuanced discussions on sexual orientation, desire, safe sex for any and all genders, communication during sex, masturbation, foreplay, and all the rest, most schools don't even touch it. Our outlook on sex has barely changed as society, technology, and science have evolved. Listen to a few minutes of this vintage sex ed movie where a kid asks his dad about puberty, sex, and the painful lack of knowledge any of his friends at school have about their own bodies. Dad? What can I do for you, son? Dad, could you tell me about sex? What's the matter, Jim? Are you, you in trouble or something? No, Dad. It's just that, well, nobody in school seems to know what's going on. And I was just wondering, you know, oh, if I... Oh, you want to know about uh, sex. That's terrific, son. <laughs> just between you and me, right? Man to man. Father and son. You know, my father never spoke to me about that kind of stuff. Uh, men have uh, their own baseball bat. Girls have uh, catcher's mitts. Am I helping you, son? Well, I don't think so, Dad. 
do this, Jim. There's um, first base, second base. No, Dad. Well, what about all these changes that are going on in my body and everything? Changes? Men just know about these things. That's all. They just know. It'll come to you. You'll see. <laughs> now, let's watch the game, huh? <laughs> He's off and running. Often, the attitudes we have that stigmatize sex begin with our parents. Here's a clip from another vintage movie, Sex Madness, from 1938, explaining this. Parents are very wrong, who add to guilt by terrifying the teenager with fables and myths, or by giving the impression that the genital areas are evil or taboo. These misstatements and misconceptions are the real dangers. Let us take a look at how these wrong attitudes toward the genital organs are formed early in infancy. Annie, don't do that. Honey, that's nasty. Honey, you know better than that. Shame, that's nasty. You know better than that. Oh, honey, you make me so ashamed of you. When parents behave this way 50 or 100 times over a period of time, the child automatically expects this kind of reaction. Without even thinking, in his young mind, he comes to believe that he's done something bad, something wrong. It's shocking to me that a video older than the Second World War has a more realistic understanding of where sexual taboos begin than the modern-day South. I've got college friends in 2019 who aren't even able to tell their parents that they have crushes, go on dates, or are interested in relationships, much less that they are or would like to be sexually active. It's important that sex ed starts at home. My parents bought me a book about reproduction when I was seven or eight, and all I ever wanted to do was read, so it was the best way to answer my questions, I think. And as I got older, my mom was pretty cool with talking to me about sex, although you could tell she was uncomfortable with the idea that I was growing up enough to ask those questions. Still, the first time I had sex, one of the first things I did afterward was tell my mom. Compared to a lot of folks I know, I'm lucky as all hell that I could do that safely, comfortably, and without judgment. Our modern sex education becomes increasingly problematic when said education is predicated on the binary that abstinence is right and having sex is wrong. It creates adversarial relationships with students and their bodies, and, of course, the trust and pleasure of consensual sex isn't ever part of the conversation. Listen to the language in the Georgia Code. It will offer some insight into what I'm talking about. The guidelines created by the board require instruction to emphasize abstinence from sexual activity until marriage and fidelity in marriage as important personal goals. In addition, the Georgia Board of Education states that sex education instruction should address peer pressure and promote high self-esteem, local community values, and abstinence from sexual activity as an effective method of prevention of pregnancy, sexually transmitted diseases, and AIDS. None of this considers desire, pleasure, satisfaction, or anything about sex aside from avoiding its consequences. Sex ed under these damaging and limited, presumptuous legal standards begins in the eighth grade in public schools. The health education standards require discussion on abstinence as the most effective and healthy means for preventing STIs, and high schools are required to talk about sexual violence prevention. But parents or guardians are allowed to remove their children from all or part of sex ed per Georgia's opt-out policy. Advocates say that the solution to abstinence-only sex ed is implementing what's called comprehensive sex ed instead. The difference is that comprehensive sex ed includes information about sexuality, sexual orientation, desire, multiple forms of contraception, and more with a realistic, compassionate outlook, rather than a overly medical, unnecessarily moralized issue. Fast, 
Shafia Zaloum is a health educator and consultant based in San Francisco who travels to schools around the country to teach sexuality education. Here she is speaking in a video for Education Week. Healthy sexuality education encompasses all the different components, aspects of one sexuality. So parents are doing the primary work by communicating their values. And then teachers and other professionals are providing young people with the information they need and the opportunity and spaces they need to discuss those things with their peers. Sex education in middle school should include puberty education that is medically accurate and comes from credible resources, as well as how that information can be applied to the social dynamics that they're experiencing. Sex education in high school should include additional information about safe sexuality practices and also continued practice on how to apply that information to the complexities of social dynamics. And the data show that this more realistic approach works. In 2013, a study based on the National Survey of Family Growth found that teens who received comprehensive sexuality education were actually 50% less likely to report a pregnancy than those who received abstinence-only education. They are also more likely to delay their first sexual encounters and to have fewer sexual partners when they do. In fact, the University of Georgia found that states using abstinence-only sex ed have significantly higher teen pregnancy rates. Not all schools in Georgia use abstinence-only education, but they all have to abide by the guidelines recommending that it be their focus, should they even implement sex ed to begin with. That doesn't keep them from sharing other information, but most choose not to. You heard that right. According to Georgia Public Broadcasting, schools choose each year whether they want a comprehensive sex ed curriculum, or an abstinence-only Virginity First program, or no sex ed at all. Here's the thing about this warped, purity culture-focused sex ed. It's predicated so deeply on shame and misinformation that students can graduate high school without knowing the difference between a vagina and a urethra. I personally know folks who fit that description. I went to a private, secular middle and high school in Northeast Georgia. We learned about the reproductive system in sixth grade, how sex worked, what menstruation is, how babies are made, which is more than kids at a lot of schools ever get. But we didn't learn about having sex, having safe sex, navigating relationships, or preventing sexually transmitted diseases or infections. You could argue that this absence of knowledge was due to the fact that most of us were only 12 years old at this point, but that was the most comprehensive sex ed we ever got before we graduated. In high school, we were required to take two semesters of health class, but the course was actually a gym class in disguise. We worked out, got weighed in front of everyone, and logged our nutrition, some very problematic practices, rather than discuss a single fact related to health, well-being, or sex education. We had a day, a single day, in my sophomore year where we discussed sex specifically, but we did it by splitting up the men and women in two classrooms for an hour and a half each, looking at pictures on the projector showing what sexually transmitted diseases look like if they go untreated. We were told to feel free to ask questions about sex, sexuality, and dating, but most of us were so horrified both by the fear tactics and the clandestine nature of the whole event that we were afraid to ask a thing. And that was it. That was our sexual education at one of the top 10 private schools in the state of Georgia. Let's talk about that a little more. It's pretty standard procedure for sex ed teachers to split up boys and girls in separate classrooms for these lessons, as though we should only learn about our own bodies and not the bodies we may one day share sexual experiences with. 
Not to mention, it only reinforces a purity culture notion that sex must remain inexplicably secret, and by suggesting that teaching all students about sex at once will encourage it, perpetuates heteronormativity. Here's one of Pulp Magazine's badass co-founders and co-editors, Katie Tandy, on the effects of this gender separation. My first foray into sex ed was in fifth grade in Mrs. Rosenfield's class in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a public school. Um, I only remember a day-long class, but they split us up, boys and girls, which only made an already very uncomfortable and shadowy thing even worse by positing one another as these unknowable creatures shouting at one another across some sort of chasm. I wanted so badly to understand what was going on inside all of us, but instead the shame and secrecy was just compounded. Avery Grillo, a 21-year-old college student in Middle Georgia, had experiences at her public school in Peachtree City that were very similar to mine. She said her classmates were taught to fear the slideshow each year, with photos of folks with STDs all intended to scare them away from having sex. She said there are other limitations as well in a program set up to discourage sex. The burden of having sex, the stigma of having sex was very much placed on female students. It was very much our fault almost if we decided to have sex. It wasn't presented as though having sex was a two-person decision. It was presented as only heteronormative sex, sex between a man and a woman, presumably a heterosexual man or woman. Um, and it was the burden of that encounter and the blame was always placed on the female in this scenario. I also think it was really harmful at my school that we only talked about sex between a woman and a man because that's not, (laughs) you know, if you were a transgender student in my class, if you were part of the, or just part of the LGBTQ plus community, you weren't getting any information about your sexual experiences. There's a lot to be said about the outcomes of sex ed and why it's so important that we guarantee this information is accessible to all students. And of course, it's important everywhere. But Georgia is declining in terms of sexual health and well-being. Our state ranks in the bottom 10 according to a 2019 United Health Foundation report. The teen birth rate in Georgia was 23.6% in 2016, the last year data was collected by Health and Human Services, compared to the national average of 20.3%. Domestic violence and sexual assault are leading causes of injuries for young women and girls over the age of 15 in Georgia, according to the Department of Human Health, affecting at least 30% of Georgia women at least once. That ranks us at number one in the nation. And sexually transmitted diseases and infections are on the rise nationwide, but the CDC found that the South had the highest reported rates of chlamydia and gonorrhea in 2018. Rates of others, such as syphilis, which can be life-threatening, increased by up to 15%. The agency found that 2018 was the fifth consecutive year in which the number of people infected with these diseases went up in Atlanta and surrounding counties, and directly attributes this to reduced access to STD prevention and care, and decreased use of condoms. Where I live in middle Georgia, there was an 11% increase of chlamydia, a 59% increase in gonorrhea, and a 187% increase in syphilis. 
Statewide, half of those infections are in young people age 15 to 24, and over half of those young people are women. No matter where you live, a lack of comprehensive sex ed has real consequences for young folks' health. But in the South, these outcomes aren't what educators are worried about. It's sex itself. The Southern way of treating it like it's a disease, like sex is something that like, if once you catch it, you know, you're just going to be carrying it around. That was Julia Partain, a Mercer University graduate living in Florida. While Avery attended public school, Julia went to a private Christian school. Private schools are less confined by the state when it comes to designing a sex ed curriculum, but that doesn't mean it's any better. In fact, it can be way worse. So essentially my sex education was non-existent. There was not a class. We were not taught anything. We were required to do help for one semester, not even a full year, one semester. Once, I think once a week we went, it was basically just something we did on the side. There wasn't even the classic like, here's a condom and a banana and this is what this goes. These are sexual transmitted diseases. These are all things I looked up myself or learned later on in college. Avery says that because abstinence-only sex education expects students to remain abstinent, they don't learn safe sex practices or what they should do if they become pregnant or get a disease. And they don't learn any context surrounding those aspects. When you're in sex education, because sex education is so abstinence-based, at least at my school, you're not learning about resources. You're not learning how to access STI testing. You're not learning about abortion. And you're also not learning about the history of reproductive rights, which I think is important. These are rights that people didn't always have, that Americans didn't always have. A woman didn't always have the right to choose. A woman didn't always have the right to use contraception. These are issues and rights that people had to fight for. And I think when you don't educate people on the history of reproductive rights in this country, you're doing a huge disservice to those people who fought so hard to allow myself and people my age to have those rights. In 2013, only 57.6% of Georgia middle schools taught students how to access valid and reliable information, products, and services related to HIV, other STDs, and pregnancy in a single required course. That's according to the Sexuality Information and Education Council of the United States, which also reported that that number increased to 92.4% in high schools. The council released a ton of more data in 2015. 14.4% of middle schools and 33.9% of high schools taught students how to use a condom. 21% of all schools taught students about all seven contraceptives listed by the CDC. And just 13.4% of all schools provided students with curricula or supplementary materials that included HIV, STD, or pregnancy prevention information relevant to LGBTQ youth. The CDC identified 16 critical sexual education topics. Healthy and respectful relationships, the influence of family, peers, and media on sexual behavior, benefits of sexual abstinence, condom effectiveness, importance of condoms, importance of condoms and hormonal birth control, how to obtain condoms, how to use condoms, 
how to communicate with a partner, and more about the emotional aspects of sexual partnerships, as well as sexually transmitted diseases. They found that only 10.6% of middle schools and 32% of high schools in Georgia taught all 16 in a single required course. The gaps in this education show you just how prominent abstinence only is. And what's worse, taxpayer money funds these programs. The Georgia Division of Family and Children's Services administers the Title V State Abstinence Education Grant Program, which is supported by federal funds from the Administration for Children and Families. The state of Georgia received $2,782,000 in 2017 for the Title V State Abstinence Program, and the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program received almost $3 million from the state. And it's not just schools. Georgia's Sexual Risk Avoidance and Youth Development Program sends these messages in statewide and local trainings, after-school programs, and foster care settings. The program also sponsors middle and high school assemblies across the state on the benefits of abstaining from teen sexual activity and targets 1,000 youth statewide to attend an annual youth summit. And they decide where to promote it based on factors that stereotype certain groups. There's actually a line in the Title V summary on the DFCS website that reads, the target population for the program are youth ages 10 to 20 years old who live in geographic locations with high teen pregnancy and birth rates, live in economically disadvantaged communities, are in foster care, or are involved with the juvenile court. The Sexual Risk Avoidance Education Program specifically emphasizes abstaining from non-marital sex. According to Julia, this language empowers schools to stigmatize and stereotypes those who go against the teachings on a moral, and in a Christian school like hers, religious basis. And of course, this burden falls disproportionately on women. Here's Julia. We were basically told that if you have sex before you're married, married that you basically have to like get on your hands and knees up until the day you die at the Lord's feet asking for forgiveness. You're basically like loose, meaning that you know, you were just willing to have sex and do anything with anybody. Your body was supposed to be this temple. You're supposed to preserve it for others. You're going to hell if you have sex before you get married. Like you basically needed, you know, the presidents or your teacher, your Bible teachers like touch to make sure that everything is okay with you. It's not uncommon for sex ed to emphasize purity and guilt over actual facts. Only 13 states in the nation require sex education to be quote, medically accurate. So schools can choose to impose any ideology they want. Georgia, surprising no one, is not one of those states. Sex ed is not required to be medically accurate, include information on contraception, or discuss sexual orientation, according to research out of the University of South Carolina. I never understood desire and how that went. What is a one-night, you know, stand versus like a long-term relationship? How do you get checked? I literally did not know what a pap smear was until I was probably 18, 19. Julia just touched on something really important, the lack of emphasis on desire or navigating sexual relationships. When you don't learn about desire when you learn about sex, you risk coming away with an overly scientific, overly medical outlook on what can and should be a really personal experience, an experience that is more than what happens to and inside of your body, an experience based on sensation, desire, and connection with yourself and with others. Sue J. Johnson is a journalist, filmmaker, and writer. She delivered a TED Talk in 2017 as a TED resident speaker called What We Don't Teach Kids About Sex, 
in which she explores the importance of teaching kids the language to describe and understand their experiences with sex in terms of sensation and desire. Before language, we're all sensation. As children, that's how we learn to differentiate ourselves in the world, through touch. Everything goes in the mouth, in the hands, on the skin. Sensation, it is the way that we first experience love. It's the basis of human connection. We want our children to grow up to have healthy, intimate relationships. So as parents, one of the things that we do is we teach our children about sex. We have books to help us. We have sex ed at school. For the basics, there's porn to fill in the gaps, and it will fill in the gaps. We teach our children the talk about biology and mechanics, about pregnancy and safe sex, and that's what our kids grow up thinking that sex is pretty much all about. But we can do better than that. We can teach our sons and daughters about pleasure and desire, about consent and boundaries, about what it feels like to be present in their body, And to know when they're not, and we do that in the ways that we model touch, play, make eye contact, all the ways that we engage their senses. We can teach our children not just about sex, but about sensuality. That's why sex ed should be separate from science in schools. We can learn about the science of reproduction in class, of course, but we need another space for discussions on everything else that sex can entail. In Julia's science classes in her Christian school, sex, science, and religion overlapped in really harmful ways that impacted her long after she graduated. I mean, you have to even understand that this spilled into our science classes. There were parts of science that we didn't even learn. I can honestly say I never learned the parts of the woman's body or the man's body, not once. I know it was in our book, but we straight up skipped the chapter. I was so scared of sex. Genuinely, I was so terrified. I honestly thought it was this one-eyed monster that was literally coming out to hurt me. That like my vagina would rupture, that I would bleed everywhere, that it would be this most miserable experience. It just scared me away from it, and I just think that's ridiculous. Like we're scaring women away from their own bodies. While most of the dialogue surrounding sex education focuses on high schools and sometimes on middle schools. We have to remember that those lessons are meant to be foundations on which students can move forward in their lives as informed sexual beings. As soon as you graduate high school, you're considered a fully fledged adult, able to join the workforce or the military or to enroll in college. And yet, many of these adults do not have a working knowledge of sex, sexuality, and their role in those spaces because of how their basic education failed them. This fundamental misunderstanding of your body and of sexual relationships will be problematic no matter where you choose to go with your life after high school. But there's a particular problem on college campuses that abstinence-only sex ed perpetuates: sexual activity without a proper understanding of consent. This is something Avery noticed on her campus. I attend a private liberal arts university in Middle Georgia, and one of the requirements of all incoming first-year students is to complete an online course about Title IX and consent. Unfortunately, I realized that for a lot of my fellow freshmen, this was the first time they were having a real lesson on what active consent looks like, on what active consent is, and that is a huge problem with our current sex ed curriculum. If you are not talking about consent in middle school and in high school, you are putting people in danger. 
this curriculum that lacks a real emphasis on consent is putting people in danger because high schools and middle schools and public schools and private schools and charter schools and home schools and wherever you are receiving your education are sending young people 17 18 19 year old young people into college into university into the workplace where they are experiencing independence for what very well be the first time and they do not have an understanding of what consent is and it is a huge flaw in our system because it's not about allowing ignorance to exist on college campuses it is it is about allowing criminal behavior to occur because students and young people have been allowed to enter these spaces without understanding the difference between consensual sex and rape. The difference between consensual sex and sexual assault. And those are crimes. And it is the responsibility of our sex education curriculum to prevent those crimes from happening out of ignorance. Sexual assault on college campuses is out of control nationwide. More than 50% of college sexual assaults take place between August and November every year, and college women are three times more likely than other women in the 18 to 24 age group to experience sexual violence. The first six weeks of a woman's college experience are the most dangerous of her life in terms of her risk for sexual violence. Nearly one in four transgender or gender nonconforming students and one in five college women experience sexual assault, and college women who identify as lesbian or bisexual are more likely to experience sexual assault than heterosexual women. Why are these rates so high? Because adults with independence for the first time, and more freedom than ever to engage in sexual behaviors, are doing so without an understanding of consent, and without respect for marginalized gender identities. The solution? Mandatory, comprehensive sex ed. Like we always do in this podcast, it's time to talk about advocates and activists doing the work to fix the sex ed crisis. The most prominent group in Georgia is known as the Georgia Coalition for Advancing Sex Education. It's led by Jamie Winfrey and Tamara Ashley. Jamie was formerly a teacher in Georgia's largest public school district and, as a mom of two, has appealed the district more than once to drop their abstinence-only curriculum. Tamara is a licensed professional counselor in Atlanta and an advocate for adolescent mental health, with a specialty in trauma, anxiety, and abuse, including sexual abuse. Their organization was formed in 2017 as a coalition of parents who found out that a local crisis pregnancy center, which are Christian-led facilities that mislead clients about abortion to deter them from seeking that care, was teaching the choosing the best, abstinence-only education in the public schools. Winfrey, in the interest of her kids' sexual safety and the separation of church and state, formed the group to challenge the school's decision and change to a medically-backed curriculum. The school system told Winfrey that the decision fell not with them, but with Gwinnett County Schools Community Health Education Advisory Committee, a board comprised of teachers, parents, and school administrators. Only three of its 27 members worked in the healthcare field. I couldn't reach Winfrey or any other representatives for her organization, but they're still active as a political force. Here's a clip of Winfrey speaking to Cosmopolitan about the state of sex ed here in the South. Most parents don't know that crisis pregnancy centers are coming into public schools and teaching their children sex education. 
religion and church is such an ingrained part of life in the South. Those lines often get blurred. They don't call it a virginity pledge anymore, they call it a freedom pledge. The implication, of course, being that if you are not a virgin, then you're incapable of having a healthy relationship or working towards a goal or, you know, being in control of your life. This is a really nasty message. The next step was changing the curriculum. Our goal was to have 10 young ladies who had gone through this curriculum speak to the school board directly. The school board is 100% white and all over the age of 65. We have people making decisions for our kids that don't represent them well. For context, over 75% of the student body in Gwinnett County is not white, according to the video. That also plays into the stereotypes that we discussed earlier, the idea that non-white communities and children are more likely to be sexual, sensual, and therefore morally reprehensible. One of the students that petitioned the board with Winfrey spoke of being sexually abused by her boyfriend in high school and based some of his actions on the lack of consent education he had received in school. Nothing at all has changed. If anything, they have dug their heels in more. A lot of these kids don't know where the line is and they don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to say that they don't know. This is a serious problem. There are eight states in the United States who require that consent even be mentioned in sex ed. All is not lost, however. I live in Macon Bibb County, where the majority of students aren't white either, and where the rate of concentrated poverty was as high as 44.7% in 2016. In 2017, the school system implemented what's called the FLASH program. They talk about abstinence as well as various forms of contraception. The program was developed in King County, Washington, and it decreased teen pregnancy in the area by 62% over 10 years of operation. Best of all, it's facilitated by public health departments, not biased teachers, not preachers, and not anti-choice religious centers meant to discourage and misinform vulnerable populations. And that's it for episode three of Between the Bills. In our next episode, we're going to talk about menstruation, period poverty, taxes on period products, and a society evolving to understand periods as affecting more than just women. Shout out, as always, to Gamus for sharing their music with us for this podcast. Hey boy, I see you, looking at me. you can check them out on Spotify by searching G-A-Y-M-O-U-S. And if you haven't heard the first or second episodes of Between the Bills, Go back and listen to them on SoundCloud, Spotify, or online at Pult Magazine on Medium. You'll find it if you search medium.com slash pultmag. While you're there, you can get a taste of our other content, like a weekly playlist, personal essays about sex, sexuality, and reproductive justice, and plenty of other stuff for and of the body. If you like what you hear, you can follow us on Medium, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Trust me, it's worth the squeeze.